The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. We welcome our podcasters today. We wish our listeners were a part of a discussion that our local fellowship just had on Pride. Because uh, it's a perfect setup for our message today on the empty cross. We're going to take some adequate time to explain what it really means to embrace an empty cross versus embrace a cross with a bunch of junk still on it. But before we get started, I would like to have our podcast listeners uh, please consider going to our homepage on our website at www.iomamerica.org and watch the video that we have put in place on um, a promotion that we are doing with Life Without Limbs. Nick will share his story with you and we will challenge you to join his efforts um, regard to what he believes that God has given him to literally reach every soul uh, in the world today in regard to the true message of the cross. And IOM America and the Exchange Live Global Initiative uh, are getting behind this and challenge you, uh, those of you who are in our network, to join uh, these efforts. But today's message is a part of a series that Many of you as regular podcast listeners are aware of that we're going through, and it is uh, a message on the identity that we have been given in Christ with a special emphasis upon terms used within the identity message. Today's specific message is embracing an empty cross, and we need to take some uh, adequate time to look that over. Who would like to read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21? Please stand as the word of God is read. For the word of the cross to those who are, is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. May God bless his word and you may be seated. Now I I didn't count, but there were, the word foolishness was used quite frequently in this tiny little passage. Is the cross complicated or is it simple? And here this passage is addressing learned people who are basically looking at the foolishness of the cross. <coughs> to know that a young man's age can actually receive the power of the cross and have his life transformed by the simplicity of the cross, and it doesn't need a well-educated person of the cross to explain the cross so that he can be an intelligent receiver of the cross. 
So listeners, particularly you pastors, I want you to listen very, very carefully to this statement I'm going to make. This is very important. And I got to tell you, I love responding to emails and text messages about this whole thing of education in the ministerial world. But I do got to confess to you, it gets very, very old to constantly explain to pastors that you do not need a, a seminary degree to be able to lead or be a pastor in a church. You just need the simplicity experientially in the power of the cross. Now many of you have a testimony you were you were received Christ and became a born again indwelt believer when you're seven years of age. And then please at six oh two 292-2982, send a text to me where it actually, there's a passage that tells you and to tell your fresh converts to send your people to higher education in order to be workers in your church. Maybe I should send you a few references that prove that you shouldn't experience higher education after you get born again. Why in the world do we send the simplicity of the cross to a mind, a young mind, and then send them off to seminaries that are teaching emergent, bogus stuff all over the world? Now, sending them to a Bible school to get to know the Word, get to know how to, how to preach that Word and whatever, is great. But when the goal is higher education so you can have a master's degree in theology so you can become a pastor of a church is stupidity. God is trying to dumb us down while we are trying to educate ourselves up to a higher standard so that people look at us like, we're the pastor, we're the doctors, we're the, we're the ones that know. Really? Zaid can know just as much as I do because if he has the indwelling life of Christ, the mind of Christ is in him. The entire doctrinal library, stay with me on this listeners, the entire doctrinal library of Jesus Christ that is in his mind is inside this young man. Burn his Bible. Burn his library references. Take it all away from him. And he will still be able to be used by God to preach, teach, lead others in the power of the cross. I got an email this week from a friend of mine in the ministry who forwarded an email of a seven-year-old evangelist. So I went and looked up the link. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. A seven-year-old getting on stage in front of thousands of people, preaching the Word of God and seeing people fall on their faces. A seven-year-old. Now I'm going to send him to seminary. I am, I'm going to send him every dollar I possibly can get, on, get and send him to seminary. Because that's a young man worth educating. Are you kidding? 
But someone has shown this young man through Christ Jesus that he doesn't need to wait to be educated for transformation. Just open thy mouth and I shall preach, says the Lord. Okay, I think we might have it a little backwards then. Now I'm going to try to capture a video and I'm going to show you this young man. I want you to to hear it. And how when the Spirit of God speaks through someone who's embraced the empty cross, they don't need to put junk on it to qualify themselves as a teacher and preacher. Big difference. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. I'd like to see Paul come forward in an average church and, and to have the people to try to prove to Paul how important it is to educate our teachers and preachers. I think we'd be rebuked. Because when you read or hear preached of Paul coming to the Corinthian church, and when he says that I come before you without persuasive words, He's saying, I don't come to you as this powerful, trained, educated preacher. He goes on to say that he was basically standing before these people fearful and trembling. This is the greatest communicator, folks, that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. The most educated communicator certainly Of his time. And he's saying, I determined to know nothing but finish the verse. Christ in him crucified. God dumbed him down to the basic message and the simple message of the power of the cross is in Jesus Christ. And whatever it is around that crucifixion. So let's talk about some of those details. The eternal worth of cross. In exposing the the unbiblical, which is what we've been doing in the past four or five messages. Exposing the unbiblical mystic applications of the cross. We must not overreact by by failing to proclaim the eternal value of Christ's death and even then the power of the cross. Now, I think that most exchange lifers would say that they understand what I mean by an empty cross. I think they would say that they understand what it means by saying if we say the power of the cross, that they could explain the power of the cross. But I'm going to show you a little illustration here in a minute that will really put the rubber to the road on whether you truly believe in the empty cross or you like the Catholics and you continue to hang stuff on it. Have you ever been in a youth group experience? And I know I'm going to offend some youth workers here. Where you put this cross you know, up at the front of your camp and you get all those young people that are attending the camp to feel guilty 
about some kind of sin. And they have to come up to the cross and they got to write it on a piece of paper what that sin is. And they got little nails there and a hammer and you nail it to the cross. You talk about cluttering the doctrines of the cross. It's almost like you're demanding for Christ to redo what he did so you can feel you've been redone. That's America for you. That's Western theology. That's what we've done to the cross. Or how about even more of a practical one? Listeners, please listen to me very carefully. When someone walks up to you and says, would you please forgive me for offending you with blah, blah, blah? Now, you're a good Christian. God's proud of you. You're a good Christian. And you say, Yes, I forgive you. And then the next day they do the same thing to you. And you have to ask yourself, does it bother you that they did it again? I remember my mobile number is 602-292-2982. Because if it bothers you, you don't preach an empty cross. You preach a cluttered cross. Because if sin is really evaporated, if sin is really wiped away, if sin is really cleared out on the cross, when Christ looks at his own cross, he sees an empty cross. There's no sin on it anymore. Someone please tell me where he took all this clutter that was on the cross. Someone please tell me. Where did he take it? If the cross is truly empty. (coughs) He took it into the tomb. He descended to the lower parts. That's called Hades. Soon to be called hell. And he, like... Shredding it off like dead skin on a snake. And just peeled it off and left it in the pit of Hades. And you think you have some kind of prerogative of calling to mind former things? Or pondering things of the past? Yeah, we do it. All of us do it. It's like standing there calling out your old sins, either maybe someone who offended you the next day, calling those sins out of hell and pinning it on them. Then you feel guilty, so you pin it on the cross. What, so Christ can come down and crucify himself again for what we put on the cross? Again? It's empty. And we'll look at the practical details of that today. The death of Jesus on the cross is indeed a central factor in the whole redemptive process and the restoration process through God's grace. By this death, Jesus took our deserved death in order that we might have his life. He did not take our death that we might have his death as the inner crucifixionists indicate. And that's any religion. I'm not just picking on the Catholics. 
It is any religious group that keeps Christ on the cross. They are inner crucifixionists. They even teach those who push away from Catholicism and literally having a rosary that they finally pray up to this Christ, little Christ, he's a tiny little guy on this cross. They finally get to that point. Or maybe it's a religious group that came from the Catholic Church who still practices the inner crucifixion. Or maybe it's some of you exchange life teachers out there that are constantly using self-effort to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's like some kind of chant you have to remind yourself of. Why not just admit it and walk? No, we got to clutter the cross up first before we do that. Here's what F.B. Meyer says or said. How few Christian people seem to realize the obedience, that obedience and trifles are bits and all things to the will and the law of Jesus is the indispensable condition of life and joy and power. The obedient soul is the holy soul, penetrated and filled by the presence of God, and of course, as you and I know, that is through Jesus Christ. Now, what has all that got to do with what we've been saying about the power of embracing the empty cross? It's one obedient decision at a time. See, there's life in obedience. But see, if we try to collect too much around this thought, you have to look at that person and say, well, you know, they don't have a lifestyle of obedience, so I'm not going to let them give their testimony in our church. That, that's a good decision. Been there, done that myself. Who defines this lifestyle of obedience? You see the Godship standards that have to move in? It's, it, it is one moment, it's one decision at a time of obedience. Because the eternal presence of the living God that has the entire library of theology living inside that mortal being. And I'm telling you, listeners, if that doesn't mess with your brain, then I really got a question, what are you made of? The eternal library of all theology, thoughts of God, is living inside your little frail body that's going to stay in the grave. The reason why you are given a brand new body when you get into the eternal position physically in heaven is because our frail bodies cannot contain the full truth, even though it has it. Our hearts would not be able to sustain understanding the fullness of God. It's too much. Plus, it's got sin in it. And wherever sin is, has to stay in the dirt where it came from. What got cursed in the garden? Man and woman? No, man did not get cursed in the garden. What did? The dirt. Cursed is the ground upon which you walk, Adam. And everything that comes forth from it by the sweat of your brow. Self-effort now. Hmm. 
See, that's where the consequences for man and woman lies in the sweat of the brow. It's the ground that's, that's cursed. And that's why when our bodies die and we put them inside six feet under in this dirt, we're trying to communicate that, that people somehow have forgotten through the generations. The body stays in the dirt. We're given a brand new body as we are put into the positional and conditional stance in eternity, heaven. If you've not read F.B. Meyer's stuff, get a hold of it. Just Google him. F.B. Myers. He is a very common sense communicator of Christ in you. The true message of the cross is the message of the completed finished work of God, not Christ, alone. It's the finished work of God the Father. This is a mission he sent his son on. And God completed his mission through his son. The message of the cross is the message of the of an empty cross. Whereupon all crucifixion activity has ceased. For Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and come to life and lives within the indwelt believer. The message of the cross is a message of that is liberating. Liberating freedom. You shall hear the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus has many names. And one of my favorite names I have heard... And that is truth. In the Hebrew, it means to get engaged to someone, to betrothed. So when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, he's saying, I am the betrothed one. I'm going to get engaged to you. I'm going to become your husband. That's why I love that word so much and that name. The three trinity of success spiritually are those three. Are you with me? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's the success story of what Christ accomplished for his daddy, his Abba, on the cross. And if you watch movies of Christ being crucified and taken off the cross, put in the tomb and whatever, you know, you can certainly have the liberty of having fun with that. But the next time you see a little scene where they are taking him off the cross, Keep this in mind. What did Jesus say that he became while he was hanging on the cross? He became sin on our behalf. They're lowering him down from the cross. Please stay with me. It was the cross that tortured him unto death so he can have this privilege. There's no sin on the cross. There's no purpose of nailing your sins on that cross. He became sin, and then he died. And as they're taking him off this cross, someone please tell me where the sin is. On the cross? It wasn't in Jesus. They were touching sin. He, he was emptied out of holiness and became sin. So for him to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? was a pretty honest statement. 
He became sin on our behalf. So as they're carrying him off to the tomb and preparing his body, and then they lay him there and they roll the stone in front of that that tomb, and he's in there. There's no sin on the cross. The torturous symbol that put him in the tomb is a significant piece of the freedom that we have. So he goes to the lower parts for a few days. And he dumps off all that sin that he became. Leaves it in the pit of Hades. Soon as that act is finished, God tells these angels to roll that stone away. And when he walked out of that tomb, he was sinless. He was perfect. He was holy. He was chosen. Everything that the Bible says is true about us, he's the one that got that first. And that sin is in the pit of Hades. For every single person who ever sinned and every single person that's going to sin that day forward. But here's the catch. If you don't receive this inward life of Jesus Christ, become born again, have the Holy Spirit placed inside your mortal body. The only benefits of what Christ did will benefit you sitting in a pew talking about Jesus. You can have a wonderful Christian life of following Jesus, going to church. You can be obedient. You can be you know, looked at and respected in the community as a solid Christian citizen, but you're going to hell. When it's all over. The benefits of what Christ did are going to stop with you when you take your last breath. Unless you have the indwelling life of Jesus Christ. That takes you into the final dimension. Of having all of what Christ did for you. And then through you has eternal weight of glory. Now I know I've offended some listeners. The finality of the cross only has benefits for humans when they are alive, for the unsaved people. There are benefits. Are you with me, guys? There are benefits in following Jesus. There's benefits in it. It's like a non-Christian taking Dave Ramsey's financial principles and making them work. They're going to work. See what I'm saying? Saved, unsaved, they're going to work. That's why the church is so deceived. Because while they're alive, they're a respected Christian citizen. That's not the great test. The great test is when you take your last breath. That will determine whether you had the indwelling life of Christ or you were a follower of the life of Christ. The exchange life doesn't get any clearer than that statement. How the believers keep the cross full. You do not have this diagram, so you'd have to draw it out. To our left here, we have a picture. By the way, those of you who are listening online, you're downloading the PDF file that has these slides. It'll be in yours. But the... the Pictorial to the left here are little marks being made by someone who's calculating 
making four little marks and then the fifth mark goes through the four, four little marks and then the last mark goes through those four and so we got five, ten, fifteen, twenty and so forth and so on. This is as practical as I can make this for you. As you're going through life, whether it's your husband, wife, brother, sister, children, whoever it is, a friend or even a stranger, offends you. We have the tendency to pick up our spiritual pens and make a mark against that person. So the next time you're around them, you're a bit cautious because you have been hurt by them once. So then they hurt you again. So you mark it down again in your mind. And again, and again, and again. So all of a sudden that person comes under conviction. And they come to you and they say, Will you please forgive me for offending you? And since you are a Christian that God's proud of, for being a good Christian, I'm being facetious, you say, Yes, I forgive you. Well, that's not the test. To have someone come out with the verbiage of Jesus does not make them of Jesus. So, you say, yes, I forgive you. The marks are still there. I think we call them scars. I think we call them memories of that person hurting you, offending you. And we kind of Leave them hanging there on the cross. That's just one person. Can you imagine calculating every person that ever hurt you in your entire life? I wonder if your cross is truly empty. So it's just one incident. Maybe ten incidents from one person. And the greatest deception that keeps these marks on the cross, these little stickums, that you write down these sins. Okay, I, I give that to the Lord. Well, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want your sins. He already became sin on your behalf and went and dealt with it. He doesn't want them. He wants his yoke light. He wants his yoke to remain light. So he wants us to fully embrace what he did with the sin. Are you with me? The reason why my yoke is heavier than the Lord of the universe when he says, take my yoke upon you, for it is light. I mean, to have the God of the universe saying, Stephen, I'm your husband. I'm Jesus Christ. My, what I carry around on my shoulders is less than you. So take my yoke. Drop yours. I already dealt with it. It's in the pit of Hades. Just take mine. Don't re-crucify it. That's craziness. So the deception is, they sinned against me. That's what's going on here. They sinned against me. Jesus said something rather startling. He says, what they do unto you, they do unto me. Here's the truth. 
Next slide shows us the believer's function of the empty cross. Yes, this stuff is going to happen here on the left. You know, you are going to remember they hurt you. You are going to know they're hurting you three, four times a day. You're going to remember they hurt you the next day after you said you forgave them. This is true. But see, the sin is, a, is, is against Christ. It's not against the believer. If we stay focused on the first part of that statement, that the sin is against us, then we can't appropriate what Christ did with the sin on the cross. So if you want a practical piece of freedom in what I'm explaining here, that when someone does tempt you to put a mark in your mind that they have hurt moi, bypass that piece. And when they are slapping you, they're slapping Christ. When they're persecuting you, they're persecuting Christ. When they're hurting your feelings, you can do not I, but Christ in the most practical way. So as they do these things to Christ on you or through you, what it should equal is he has already forgave you. Here's one of the craziest statements that I use in counseling, discipleship, or preaching, or whatever. And I say it this way because I, I want to boggle someone's mind. And someone says, I took that to Jesus and he dealt with it and forgave me. What I say is, you don't need to go to Christ for forgiveness. You don't need to ask him to forgive you. Now, if I left it there, how dangerous is that? Very dangerous. But is there someone here this morning that could quickly explain what you think I mean by that? Understanding the exchange life? As you said, Jesus took all sin for all time, past, present, future, took it upon himself, descended into hell, left the sin there. So if you are an exchanged life person, then all of your sin has already been dealt with. So then what do I do with a, a sin that I chose to commit? You go to the Lord and you, rec and you tell him that you recognize that you have sinned and thank him for already doing the work. I hope our listeners got that. It's a, there is such a huge gap between the two. Because one puts a focus on groveling before the Lord and measuring the level of repentance. If they're not truly repentant, I can tell. So they leave the mark. I'll wait until they're truly repentant. What did F.B. Myers just say to us? One bit at a time of obedience. The difference is, now I get to explain to this person, you don't need to go and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you because you are re-crucifying Christ. You need to do exactly that. You just need to confess out, hey God, I blew it here again. You just confess it out and then you say, 
thank you, thank you, thank you that you have taken care of this already. The cross is empty. And I can assure you him being a God of the yes and Jesus being a son of the God of the yes, he's going to say, yes, it is done. It is finished. See, I'm not calling out from Hades my sins and and then rubbing them in the face of Jesus. When we ask him to re-crucify, re-forgive, re-whatever, we are rubbing our sins in his face. And he said, I have wiped away your transgressions, for I remember not. This is a direct quote, by the way. I have wiped away your transgressions, your guilt and your sin. I remember not your sin. Can you stay with me on this? It's like if I call up a a constant sin and I put it before Jesus Christ's face, I'm actually confessing in a covert way, or maybe not so covert, that he lied to me. He didn't wipe it away. The cross isn't clear. He does remember my sin. Do you know every time you confess a sin, it's a brand new sin to Christ? Every time. It's brand new. The reason why we have a memory of sin is because God doesn't want us thinking every time we sin. It's the first sin we've committed. Does that make sense to you? He doesn't need a memory of sin. He doesn't need to see those marks on the cross. He doesn't need to walk up to his own cross and go, Oh yeah, Steve's a real scumbag. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, I remember those things that he did in his teenage years. Oh, yeah, he did that one yesterday. Oh, thank God for my redemption. He doesn't need to remember your sin. His yokes are empty. So when he offered that to us to take off that yoke off his shoulders and put it on our shoulders, that thing was going to be so light you won't even know you're carrying a yoke. Because it's empty. The bags are empty. And I just don't know too many people. Forget the Christ followers. I expect them to drag around a rock. But I don't know too many indwelt believers that function like this. Including me. I'm looking at this two ways. This, This diagram. You can look at it as the way we view people who hurt us. Or you can view it as the way you view God's forgiveness towards you. But this is the only answer to not being bitter. Right. About about other people repeatedly hurting you. Bitter is actually a taste left on your taste buds that is defiling. It's poison. So when you're not bitter, there's nothing, there's no bad taste in your mouth for that person. Now, here's the ugliest thing of our scenario today. Is anyone who keeps the cross full is the one who says, I am God and I will pay you back. I'm not going to talk to you for seven years. I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to believe you. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not. And they just go down this list. Isn't that our gotcha message? The only one that has the prerogative to seek revenge is God because the sins are against Him. 
you're going to deal with an unbelievable wrath. And the reason why God is filled with wrath is because of the people who hurt his son's bride, who's not to defend themselves. Women are not called to defend themselves. It's the husband's job or the father. We have it all backwards. They'll be online if you want them. But since you're my wife and I'm proud of you, <laughs> just got to get it in there wherever I can. I'll get you a copy. Okay, let's break it down a couple more pieces and then we'll be done. The empty cross is the only good news available to mankind. The grace, unearned favor. When you guys think about grace, do you think about it in the actual term, definition? Or do you think of something else? I can't even say the word in my mind without hearing unmerited favor. What do you think about? Getting away with your sin? Not having to go to hell because of your sin? The message we should be left with, that it's finished. There's nothing you do to get God's favor. He's never, ever, ever going to say to you, I'm proud of you, faithful servant. Welcome are you into my kingdom. That would make him arrogant. You see, he fulfilled, he did the work, finished it out. And then he came to us and said, Okay, my son has been obedient unto death. He's finished my work. Now it's free to you. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing you can say. There's no special prayer you can write out. It is a finished work. Just be thankful in all things, be anxious for nothing. That's all the doing you need to do is to do to rest. Hebrews chapter 4. It's the only thing that is mentioned in the entire Word of God that says we're to do is do to rest. Labor to rest is the actual word that's used which is laboring to do nothing. You're resting. It's a little bit of an irony there. So Paul refers to preaching the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.17, and then in the next verse refers to the content of the gospel as the word of the cross. The word is who? Jesus. And he came to dwell among us so we could behold his glory. So it is... The Christ of the cross. See, Paul understood all that because he's getting these special revelations from the Holy Spirit. Which he continues to explain is to us who are being saved by the power of God. Well, of course we're being saved by the power of God because he is the word. So if Satan was to be Mr. Tricky, he'd get people to study to the word to try to find salvation. 
embarrassing as this is for me to say this before my husband and my savior is that I live in a country that has promoted people studying the word externally to have eternal life. Not embracing the Christ of the cross, the word who came to dwell in me. Total different perspective. But we've been blessed with being able to read the word externally so it will bear witness with the truth. That's very cool. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, I really have to ask the question, what does it mean to be ashamed of the gospel? Shut thy mouth, O child of God. Suppress the word that is in you, O child of God. These are the accusations of Satan. Closing us off, sealing us up, not letting the word out that is in us. So this can bear witness with this. This should be a mirror of what is already true inside you, not to educate you and change you. That is so American, it's ridiculous. The external word of God does not change you, it changes your thinking. It's the word, Christ himself, of the cross that changed me through the power of the cross. What really does it mean to be ashamed of the gospel? Every one of us needs to ask that question of ourselves and others. If one is ashamed of the gospel, what does that communicate about the power of the cross? Here's the main violation, self-effort grace. Anything other than the, the recognition of God's power of grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ will inevitably be some kind of self-effort that makes void of the cross. I don't know too many Christians that enjoy hearing chantings of other religions. It's oppressive to chant. The reason why that certain religions have chanting it's to make you brainless and you just zone out. And we do that as indwell believers. I've been crucified for Christ. It's no longer I live. Pick up my cross and follow him. And Who are we trying to convince? Jesus? Were you talking to Jesus about Jesus? What he said? Or are you rubbing it in his face saying, Well, you said this? How come I can't have the freedom? Because you're a chanter. You're a self-effort grace person who's chanting your way through the exchange life. Repetition does not change your life. It changes your mind. I hope you get that piece. Boast in this. Proclaim only that Jesus Christ had performed everything necessary for our redemption on the cross and continues to perform everything necessary in the indwelt Christian life by and through his grace, unmerited favor. So when you see the word grace, please hear the real definition. No more work. No more chanting. No more. That's what you got to see 
with the word of grace. Not that it's all been covered in the blood of Jesus. Isn't that kind of obvious? So we could have grace. No more work. Let's chant that for a while. <laughs> then I'll be really proud of you guys. The finished work includes sanctification. <clears throat> so the proclamation of the finished work of God in Christ, whereby God has done and is doing everything necessary for man's salvation, saved from darkness into light, including sanctification, is once you get to the light, and you still got shadow boxes hanging around in your life, leftover trash from the old nature, you can't ignore it. It needs to be brought into the light to get rid of the shadow. You don't chant out darkness. Okay, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm so long. It's just let the light do what the light's supposed to do. And that's how it works. It's that simple. But we put so much work into our sanctification so, key factors here, it's, it is contrary to all of the conventional wisdom of the world, and that's what our passage was talking about today with Paul. We make too much work out of it. We, we think it's too simple. So, proclaiming the finished work of God in Christ deals with the death blow to the human pride of personal performance. And so, let's rephrase it using the Hebrew definitions we talked about earlier. And it would read like this. Proclaiming the finished work of God in Christ deals with the death blow of the human satanic reflection of Satan through performance. Satan is an expert at working to look good. And he does honestly look good. He's got... Most of the humans following him always has and always will. The selected few that make it into this new eternal heaven being designed for us as we speak, very few people. Here's 1 Corinthians 2, 1, 8. Someone want to read that out for us, please. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come through superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We probably are most offended by people who don't understand what it is we're trying to communicate. At least I am. And God has to consistently remind me that this is the world. 
he has put us in. But we still have to communicate the truth, even though they're spiritually praised, as this passage goes on and says. That the unsaved people are spiritually praised and they will never get it until they receive the indwelling life of Christ. Once you receive the indwelling life of Christ, you have the understanding of eternity. So when you hear pieces of truth, you go, wow. You don't fight it. You go, wow. I hate hearing that, but wow. It's the wow factor in its truest sense. He who has listened today, I want to encourage you to please listen to next week's podcast. It's one of my favorite topics, and it needs to go on to podcasts. There's going to be a booklet that goes with this podcast called Indwell Christianity versus Christianity. And we're going to put an audio with this message because we need to clearly explain the difference between being a Christian and being an indwelt Christian. Because you listen to your average Christian leader, they don't separate that out. Then I showed them a list of 140 religions that use the term Christian. You talk about offending someone. Separate those two. Because most people are content when they see touched by an angel use the term God. Wow, the Christian show. No, I listen for not just the, the name Jesus Christ, the indwelling life of Christ. And sometimes that takes a little personal contact to find that out. We need to do that. We need to understand what the world views as Christianity versus what does it really mean to have the indwelling life of Christ. So listeners, if you were blessed today, listen next week as we cover the details on how to explain the difference between a pew-setting, Christ-following, external, descriptive type of believer versus one who can describe Christ from the inside out. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.